You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. He is risen. I'll try that again. I'll say he is risen, and when I'm done, you'll say he is risen indeed. He is risen. Well done, well done. Um, everyone have a funeral fan? It's kind of nice. It works as well because you know the AC's broke. <laughs> so if you get a little hot, uh, there's a lot of people in here today. Just feel free to use it, cool yourself off. But a couple of things I want you to note. One, there is a QR code on the back. If you, if you scan that, that will take you to the site where you can give to the new AC. A little shameless plug on that point. The other is this, that although we have funeral fans, and although somehow it seems somewhat appropriate for an Easter Sunday morning to have a fan in church, this is not a funeral. It's not a funeral because that's not the story. In the same way that the story of Abraham and Isaac is not a story of Isaac's death, obviously Isaac doesn't die. The Jews call it the binding of Isaac, not the sacrifice of Isaac. This, too, is not a story simply about a death. It's the story about new life. It's the story about resurrection. When I was in high school, I was in our high school marching band. And, I mean, that might seem obvious to you. I'm a bit of a kind of a band geek kind of guy. Although, I don't seem to have the right amount of rhythm that somebody who spent so many years in band should have. But in any case, I played the alto saxophone, and uh, one year, we played a thing called uh, a New Orleans Jazz Funeral. Um, in New Orleans, one of the things that they'll do is that funerals uh, are kind of two-pronged. On the one hand, it's a dirge. It might start slow and sad because, of course, we're sorrowful because someone has died, right? And so they'll play a song like, Nearer My God to Thee. And you can feel the anguish and the pain and the sorrow. But once the person is kind of placed in the grave, there's this sense in which to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And that it, it shifts and there is a celebration. And that celebration is something that I think is quite... Uh, analogous to what we find in the Christian faith, that we go from Good Friday to the dirge of all dirges, the sorrow of all sorrows. The one innocent man to have ever lived was executed by the state. Until today, right, where the saints can go marching in. And that's exactly what I think we should feel, certainly on Easter Sunday, but really every Easter Sunday. This is not just for Easter Sunday, believe it or not. This is actually for every Sunday. Like, every Sunday is the day of resurrection. Like, even during the season of Lent, which, thank God, has come to an end. I don't know what you all gave up for Lent or if you gave up something. I gave up social media, and at first I thought that's no big deal, but in the last few days I'm, like, really missing it, and so I'm going to be glad to kind of turn that back on when I get home today. But, but, but what the idea of Lent is that 
Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, and so we spend 40 days of fasting or 40 days of kind of giving something up to kind of prepare our hearts to celebrate this day. But what's interesting, between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday morning isn't 40 days. Yet we celebrate 40 days of Lent. So it's 46 days. So where are the extra six days? The extra six days are the Sundays because you're never supposed to fast on a Sunday because Sunday is not a fasting day for Christians. Sunday is a feasting day for Christians. Sunday is always a day to celebrate because Sunday is the day that we celebrate the resurrection, that each week begins anew with our belief in new life, our belief that our belief that God is doing something in this world, and it started with the resurrection of Jesus, the most remarkable part of human history. So I want to thank Donnie for reading that passage out of the Gospels. It's such a powerful story, right? I love it. I love the fact that these two women are the ones who come to the tomb and they, they see the angel, they see the empty tomb, and they go then and tell others about it. This year, on, on Ash Wednesday, I quoted from a poem from Henry uh, Wordsworth Longfellow. And I, I wanted to kind of come back to that uh, poem again. So he says this. What does he say? Yes, there it is. He says... Our hearts, like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches to the grave. Our hearts, like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches to the grave. This is the first part of that New Orleans jazz funeral, right? This is the dirge. This is the near my God to thee. So all of your hearts have been beating since you've been here. Um, Unless you have some medical condition I don't know about, most of you have been unaware that your heart's been beating. You, had, you didn't have to make any conscious choice. You didn't hear it beating. It is muffled, a muffled beat inside of you that you're marching to. And where are you headed? The grave. I mean, that's what it says on Ash Wednesday, right? From ashes to come to ashes you shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here's the secret. Here's the mystery. Here's what Christianity knows and is the good news for all of creation, that the tomb that we're marching toward is not our tomb. The tomb that we're marching toward is the empty tomb of Christ. And here we are this day, Easter Sunday morning, and we've gotten to the tomb, just like Mary and the other Mary, and we've seen an angel and we've looked in, and what we see that our march has brought us to Not just a nearer God to thee, but some glad morning. When this life is o'er, I'll fly away. That's the good news of Easter. But the good news of Easter, friends, interestingly enough, not only is this not a funeral, right? But also it sets us up for new life. You see, Jesus is called in the book of Revelation the firstborn of the dead. Now granted, There have been other people before Jesus who had died and come back to life. And there have been people since Jesus who have died and come back to life. And thank God for modern medicine. For those of you who work in that field, it happens all the time in hospitals, right? 
People will flatline, they get hit with a defibrillator, they come back to life. But Jesus did not come back to life like all those other people. He, didn't, he hadn't signed a, a do not resuscitate when he went to the cross, right? He doesn't come back to life. He dies, and then he comes, he comes out on the other side of death. He's resurrected. Everyone who's ever come back to life has died again, right? You've heard of the stories about being born again, right? Well, these people died again. <laughs> but their death that happened again is not what this story is all about. This story is about Christ, the firstborn of the dead, the one who's gone through death, who's come out on the other side of it, and who will never die again. And that's the promise that we have, a new life. There is a passage out of Acts that is coupled with this passage from Matthew, and I wanted to read it to you. It's pretty short. It's Acts chapter 10. So Luke is writing. He says this, Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Christ, he is Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Look. This isn't the first time that Luke had said this, and it won't be the last time that he said it. But Luke really makes the point in, in the book of Acts that the death of Jesus is not the responsibility of God. Jesus doesn't die because somehow God is involved in his death. You killed him, it says. You killed him, right? This is, this is what the Jewish leaders are responsible for, according to Luke, even though they didn't do it themselves. In Hebrew, there is a, um, there is a tense where causality can exist in one person, even though they weren't the actor. They caused it to happen. Um, it's, a, it's called the Hithpael, if you're interested. But um, this, this is what's, I think, at play here. They're being held responsible for it because they utilize the Romans, right? So they're, they're guilty too. But of course, the Romans are the ones that actually did it. So of course, they're guilty too. So whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, we all seem to be a part of being responsible for the death of Christ. But what is God's response to the crucifixion? God's response to the crucifixion is the resurrection, See, just a week ago, I stood up here and we talked about waving some palm branches and kind of folding them into crosses. And we said then that the crowd last Sunday that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the same crowd 
on Friday who is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And friends, we have to be very careful to remember that it's not God who said, crucify him, crucify him. It's the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. If you want to hear what God is thinking, then listen to Jesus, God in the flesh. As as Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that act, in that death and, and the corresponding resurrection of Jesus, we get the truest and fullest revelation of who our God is. So what is the calculus of atonement? How, how, how does all of this work? How does the death and resurrection of Christ kind of work in our lives? This is something the church has been talking about endlessly, right, from the beginning. And some of these ideas, I just wanted to highlight just a few of them for you. One of the earliest ones was the idea that Christ was our divine example. This is one I think we should probably talk more about. Like, we're quick to want to talk about Jesus as Savior, but we're a little slower to talk about what it means as Christ is Lord. He is our master. He's our teacher. Like, he's more than that, of course, but when he was first known, he was known as a rabbi before he was known as a prophet, and he was known as a prophet before he was known as Christ, and he was known as Christ before he was known as the divine son in the flesh, right? But we should never forget that first a rabbi, always a rabbi. And we are his disciples. We are his students. And we should follow, therefore, his teachings. He sets an example for us. And in that, we see how to live. Perhaps you've heard ministers say in the past that Jesus died on the cross so you wouldn't have to. That's, that's not exactly right. Had you died on a cross, what would that have done for you? You know what you'd be dead if you died? You know what happened if you died on a cross? You'd be dead. That's what would have happened. Yeah. But Jesus' death on the cross makes all the difference in the world. So one writer said it like this. Jesus did, not so much that Jesus died on a cross so you wouldn't have to, as much as it is that Jesus died on a cross to show you how to. In fact, he says to his disciples, right, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. So if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to be a student of that rabbi, then you have to mimic your life after his life. And he set the example for us how to live. He showed us. Like he didn't just say, turn the other cheek and then, you know, not live what he preached. If you want to see an example of turning the other cheek, look at the cross. It is the ultimate example of one who turned the other cheek, who did not retaliate. He didn't respond in like kind. He didn't, he didn't respond um, to evil with evil, right? He responded to evil with love and with sacrifice. And that has made all the difference. Like, our God is not like the ancient gods of the Canaanites, our God is not like the gods of the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. Our God is different. Our God doesn't kill. Our God gives life. Our God forgives. Our God dies. That's what our God is willing to do. There are other theories, of course, that 
pull from other metaphors from Scripture. One of them is a ransom theory, that, that Jesus paid a ransom. He's kind of paid a debt. We sing a lot about this. You know, a debt I, I, I could not pay, right? This is some of the Easter songs we sometimes sing. It's certainly in Scripture. It's in Mark chapter 10, right, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's where we get the idea from. It is a little tricky, though. We have to be careful when we use that metaphor because if we, if we play it out too far, we'll get ourselves in trouble. Like, who's paying the debt to who, right? As if somehow evil or Satan has a right to the life of Christ or to the life of people and that somehow we have to, uh, we have to pay the debt or if we can't pay the debt, God pays the debt for us. But then, who, again, who is God kind of paying the debt to? It gets, it gets a little messy pretty quickly. Which is why, and I've mentioned this before in sermons, I think C.S. Lewis's The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is so brilliant because he really expresses how that particular metaphor can be helpful, but it has its limits, right? So the white witch, she's playing by that calculus. That's, that's the economy that she's playing with, that she can kill Edmund. Um, but if Aslan sacrifices his life for Edmund's, then even better for her. But what she doesn't know, but what Aslan does and what we know too in Christianity is that there is a deeper magic than just that there has to be blood for sin, right? The deeper magic is that if the innocent one will give his life, then all will be forgiven. And the very, the very sacrificial system itself will come to an end, which is why in the novel, the stone table on which Aslan the lion dies is broken. Because no one, no death matters anymore. Not just ours, but not an animal's, not anybody's, right? This is what it says in Hebrews, no sacrifice remains. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Why does no sacrifice remain? Not because our Lord went to the temple and sacrificed himself on the altar of burnt sacrifice, but because people carried him outside the city. And outside the city, they killed him. And our God responded by raising him from the dead. That this same Jesus, right, who had taught and who had lived and who had fed the hungry and who had healed the sick and who had calmed the storms, that same Jesus who had preached this good news of the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus we killed and that Jesus God raised from the dead. There's many other, there's many other um, kind of theories that kind of talk about how this economy of the atonement works. But I want you to hear this. Brian Zahn says this in his book, um, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. You've got to love that title, right? Obviously, it's a play off of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But Brian says this. He's a pastor from Missouri. Sinners in the Hands of, of a Loving God. He says... We sometimes tell the story in such a way to think that Jesus had to die on the cross to change God's mind about us, right? So if Jesus dies on the cross, God's mind is changed and God will see us as something different. So somehow Jesus is changing God's mind about us. He says, but that's not how he thinks it actually works. Jesus is not dying on the cross to change God's mind about us. Jesus is dying on the cross to change our mind about God. We see when Jesus dies on the cross, we see who our God really is. 
we see a God who is willing to do it all, to make the covenant and to keep the covenant, right? Not just on the divine side, the, God, the covenant that God made with Abraham, but also on the human side, what Abraham couldn't do, what Adam couldn't do before him, what Moses couldn't do after him, or David, or anyone else, right? Christ comes and he does. And when Christ is faithful, the very faithfulness of Christ is what keeps the covenant on the human side. That's why we can be so assured of our salvation. Because our salvation is not dependent in any way on our works. Our salvation is dependent on God. God says, I want to forgive you. And then he comes in the flesh and dies for us. And then the Father responds to that with the resurrection. And therein lies our salvation. The work is God's. Salvation is the Lord's, says the psalmist. Salvation is the Lord's. That's what the psalmist says. And it's the Lord who has offered this to us. Really, all you have to do is stop running away. Stop saying no to the love of Christ. God's already done all that needs to be done. Sins need to be forgiven. He's taken care of that. He's died on a cross. He's given his very life. There's, there's nothing that needs to be done except for you to stop saying no to Christ. He's, he's been hunting you down. You're here today. Thank God. Right? On Easter Sunday. But as you're here, know this. That the Lord loves you. And the Lord has called you. And the Lord has a plan for your life. A plan to bless you and not to curse you. This, this is what we know. That it's not so much. Again, this is the way in which we tell the story. And it, we, we get it just a little off. The cross is not something that the Father needed Jesus to endure in order to forgive. The cross is what the Father endures in Jesus as he forgives. He's willing to go that far for us and for his world. He gave us the best possible thing, himself, life. Life embodied, all the joy, all, all the happiness, all the fulfillment, right? Life embodied, there it is, Jesus Christ. That's what God gives us. And our response to that was no. You know what's interesting? 300 years before Jesus was born, Plato, the Greek philosopher, wrote his book, The Republic. One of the most influential, important books kind of written in Western culture. In The Republic, Plato said this, if a righteous man, a completely righteous man, were to ever live, we would crucify him. That's pretty prophetic, isn't it? Who knew Plato could be so prophetic? It's like, uh, Plato Jeremiah? <laughs> like, what's his middle name? Isaiah? If a truly righteous man ever lived, we would crucify him. Like, that's what we would do to someone like that. And sure enough, he was right. A truly righteous man came. And so, it's not that on the cross, on Good Friday, we see the justice of God. On Good Friday, we see the love of God. On Easter Sunday, 
we see the justice of God. It is in no way just for a righteous person to be executed by the state. And if there were ever a righteous person, it's Jesus. And he was executed by the Romans. And that's just not just. But it is loving. It is that kind of self-sacrificial love that he calls us to when he tells us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. But on Easter Sunday morning, when God raises him from his dead, raises Jesus from the dead, we see God's justice not allowing, not allowing the, the righteous one to have died for nothing, but giving him life. We sometimes, again, we'll talk about this work as though God is pouring out his wrath. And sometimes we'll even say he's poured out his wrath on Christ. That, that's really, that's like, like self-hate there, right? Like kind of inflicting himself. I think God pours out his wrath on the cross because God is angry at the death of his son. But his wrath is poured out on the cross not onto Christ. This is, this is um, the, the governmental theory of atonement. United Methodists, any Methodists in the group? It's all right. You guys really love this one, right? Your tradition? Nope. Anyway, no Methodists here. <clears throat> but the wrath of God is poured out on the cross, and so God's wrath brings to an end the power of sin and death. Right, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus has paid that debt so that Paul would write to the Corinthians, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It has no power over us. For our God has the power and he has provided. This is, this is in a way kind of the whole gospel story. I've tried to tell it in ways that Hopefully you can hear it afresh and anew that this is not a funeral. This, this is life. And we're going to come and we're going to celebrate that life, that resurrected life at the table here in just a few minutes. But before we do so, I want us to pray. I want us to pray for our world. I want us to pray for our town. I want us to pray for one another. I want us to share our grace and peace with one another. And I want us to embrace this idea, this new life that we are now a part of. As St. Peter would say later, you are living stones, members of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Live, stones, confess, breathe. Follow Jesus. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.